0: Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Devaris Brown, CEO and co-founder of Maroxa, a stream processing data application platform that's raised over $19 in funding. Devaris, thanks for chatting with me today.
1: Uh, Brett, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. No problem. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Yeah, I'm currently the CEO and co-founder of a company called Maroxa. I started off my career as a software engineer at Microsoft and Throughout my entire career, I've just built platforms that have helped developers do their best work. And so this led me to being product executive places at like Zendesk and Visco, Heroku and Twitter, who I guess is X now. But, uh, oh, and ultimately uh, co-founding uh, Maroxal with my co-founder Ali. So yeah, a little bit about me. I'm originally from Southside Chicago, like, you know, Sox over Cubs, Chicago, everything on sports. Just because I moved to the Bay Area does not mean I'm a bandwagoner. You know, all those, those, all those good things.
0: Now, if you think back to when you were maybe 15, 16 years old, did you think at some point you'd end up being a founder and an entrepreneur?
1: Or where did that, you know, drive come from or that, that concept come from for you? I mean, honestly, it's gonna sound kind of weird, but yes, I did think that I was gonna be a a entrepreneur. The drive came from a couple places. One my grandparents. So my granddad was one of the first execs at uh US Steel. And because of discrimination and things like that, you know, he wasn't able to, to rise to the ranks. So he started his own company. And so I used to go on like trips with him and my little little baby zoot suits, right? And uh we would go and, and do some, you know, meet execs and things like that and and all these like wonderful places like Allegheny, Pennsylvania <laughs> and you know, Detroit and things like that. Right. So I saw it there and my grandmother was an artisan and and she had her own storefront. And so that was like my very first experience with entrepreneurship. But then my mom actually got a job in the first dot com boom. So when I was like 13, 14, I saw, I mean, back then in 97, 96 and 97, I mean, it was just the wild, wild west. And I was seeing, you know, teenagers come up with ideas and being millionaires and things like that. So I actually wrote out a business plan for something that I wanted to do. And it's funny because when I started Maroxa and, you know, we got funded and all of that, my mom found that this, I didn't know she had kept it, but she laminated it for me. And she was like, you always had it in you. So the answer is yes. I always knew that I was going to do something in this. I just didn't know what it was going to be. But I knew it was going to be something in software and it was going to be a startup. But I just didn't know exactly what it was going to be. Now, a few other questions we like to ask, and the goal here is really just to better
0: understand what makes you tick as a founder and as an entrepreneur. First one is what CEO do you admire
1: the most and what do you admire about them? CEO that I admire the most, there's a couple of people. One is uh, this guy from Chicago, Eric Lifkoski. This dude at one point had, I think, three or four public companies that he had founded and he was like still involved with them at the time. And I was just like, man, this guy's got his his finger on the pulse of Sightcast. But just just understanding, like you know, having learning how to build great teams, learning how to take your ideas from you know piece of paper to execution, and just really working a niche, right? Like that, that was something that I, that I admired from him quite a bit, you know. And I think for me, some of the other CEOs that I admire, one of them is is a guy named Dave Stewart. Uh, he was the founder of company called Worldwide Technologies. When I was growing up, I used to read a magazine called Black Enterprise, and I would see pictures of him. And there were always these other CEOs that were doing you know, things outside of tech, but he was the one person that was very, very successful in the tech industry. And just, I've gotten to be adjacent to him and and see the kind of company that he's built, how it's had the staying power, how it's been kind of growing and all those things. Um, and so for me, those are are the two people that I admire. And what about books? And the way we like to frame this, we got this from Ryan Holiday, and
0: he calls them Quake Books. So he defined a Quake book as a book that rocks you to your core. It really influences how you think about the world and how you approach life. Do any Quake Books come to mind for you?
1: Yeah, two of them, actually. Uh, The first one is a book called The Peter Principle. And the reason why is that is, I mean, in my 20s, like, I was a really, really good engineer, but I made sure everybody else knew that. Like, I had to be the best. And really what this book was telling you is like, look, you won't ascend because, you know, you think it's all about your work output, right? But it's really, how do you make the people around you feel, right? And so if I would have learned that in my 20s, man, I feel like, you know, the divorce you see could have been a whole lot better. But once I read that, I understood it. And then my career benefited from that when I was in corporate America. The other book that rocked me to my core was Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willing. And, you know, beyond it, you know, the military overtones It's really about how do you operate autonomously in a large bureaucratic organization? Sounds like corporate America, right? Uh, and so for me, it was just really about like taking ownership, doing the things that are within my scope, but really having uh, agency and pride over the things that I can do. And then, you know, how does that filter down as a, as a CEO, right? Like how do you enable and empower people to act autonomously in service of a larger mission? And I think those two books are, are really like anybody that gets into, you know, leaving college or, you know, is that a crossover with their career? I'll always recommend those two books. Yeah. Jocko Willick is a, he's a beast. That's one of the scariest looking people I think I've, I've ever seen before. <laughs> oh man. I mean, it's crazy, right? It's just like this dude, you know, can kill you in like 50 million different ways, but he's just like, you know, very matter of fact and talking kind of like a, a thought leader, like we're, we're in the Bay, right? Like he doesn't have you know, a Patagonia vest or the horn rib glasses. All right. So, so it's just like, it's just so interesting receiving that, that wisdom and knowledge from somebody that you know can do the things that he can do.
0: <laughs> have you gotten his newest? Um, I don't know when it came out, but he has another book. Actually, it's on my desk in front of me called Discipline Equals Freedom. Have you read that book? Oh, I have not, but I, that is something that I will definitely put on my list. You got to get it, man. It's so good. It's more like kind of like a coffee table book. It's not like broken up by chapter. And basically each section is just like a, a little quote or a little paragraph and some just good advice from him on discipline. And it's a, it's a fun read. It's a, it's really entertaining.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a, absolutely an interesting topic, man. Like, it's funny if you, you know, you ask me about CEOs that I admire and a lot of them are very, very, very principled and a lot of them are very great. Very right. And it's like, that rigidity, that, you know, just kind of knowing what your day is, it, it does take away a lot of the uncertainty. So that that's actually a really good, good point. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check that out. Nice. Yeah, you have to let me know. We'll know what you think about it. Now, let's switch gears
0: here and let's dive deeper into miraxa So can we just maybe start with a high-level
1: overview of the, the problem that you're solving and how the solution solves the problem? Yeah, definitely. So very, very simply, we help people move data from one place to the other with code. And the reason why that's super important is that, you know, currently to move data, you have to have a bunch of these like different systems that you have to kind of Frankenstein together. And with us, it's just like, look, you don't need to have an expert at, you know, each one of those systems. Your engineers already know how to write code, to pull data from places, to get it in a format that's, you know, usable, you know, whatever, and then to be able to distribute that wherever it is that you want to store it, wherever it is that you need to So. For us, doing it with code, it saves a lot of headaches around complexity, saves a lot of uh, headaches around hiring folks, because you literally are giving your everyday software engineers data engineering superpowers to, to ingest, transform it, and kind of orchestrate data as they see fit. And that's really the the problem that we're solving is, is like, look, this world is going to get increasingly more and more real-time, right? Like, you want to get an Uber? Do you want to wait 10 minutes to find a driver? You know, when you sit down for the weekend and you know, you want to watch some Netflix, you wanna wait ten minutes to get a recommendation? Absolutely not, right? Like consumer expectations are are like we want our thing and we want it now and we want it personalized and contextualized for whatever it is that we you know for the for our preference. And so really what we're doing is we're building the rails and the, the framework to make moving that data a lot easier and by focusing on developers. It broadens the amount of people that can do that do that job, and so for us, if we're if we're successful, that means that there's going to be a lot more. I shouldn't say if, but when we're successful, that means it's going to be a lot more. You know, personalized applications and experiences driven by real time data, and I think that that's really the the ultimate goal. And looking at your LinkedIn, I, I want to ask about the timelines here
0: because I I imagine it's a pretty good story. So you leave Twitter in December. 2020, and then you you start Maroxa shortly after that. It sounds like you started Maroxa
1: right as the pandemic was starting. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. It's <laughs> funny. So we went through an accelerator, Village Global, It was just absolutely fantastic. The people there are just uh, amazing. And Dwayne, uh, Sam, Kirstner, you know Eric Tornberg, people th- those types of people helped us out on our journey. And I remember sitting in like we had our first like cohort like orientation week. And then the next week it was COVID. <laughs> and it was just like, nope, uh, I don't know how we're going to have a, an accelerator, but everything ended up working out how it was supposed to. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of founders where you know they have similar stories of starting the company. Like, you know, you take the
0: leap of faith. You're like, all right, I've accounted for everything that could go wrong. I'm ready for this rocket ship. And then COVID happens. Like, No one could ever predict that would possibly happen. And that was like a scenario that could even exist. So. I really admire founders who started companies at that time and were able to push through because, man, those first, like, what, four or five months of the pandemic, that was just a gnarly time. Obviously, you know, things ended up turning out well for tech companies and the money started flowing again, but there was that period of just insane uncertainty where no one knew what the hell was going to happen, and I think it was hard for companies to really push through that period.
1: Yeah, I mean, for us, we benefited because everybody was at the same spot. It gave us a point where we can just focus and concentrate without a whole bunch of noise, right? And, and you know, to do the things that we're doing and as we do on the platform, we just needed like time to concentrate without a whole bunch of distractions that I think it was actually a benefit for us. And then the other thing, it taught us how to work within constraints, right? Like whatever it is, to capital, you know, mobility, like all these things, you know, we were born out of that, right? And so going forward, like everything looks kind of rosier now, right? <laughs> Yeah, all about perspective there, right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Now,
0: when I was uh, preparing for this interview, I was you know looking through the customer logos that you have on the site, and I also saw something you shared. And I, I saw NASA, that you're you're working with NASA. You know, I'm a big space nerd, and I have been my whole life, so I was very excited to see that. How do you land a company like NASA? You know, how do you, as a startup, get a company like NASA or an organization like NASA to really just give you a shot?
1: Yeah, I mean, it started off with the Air Force and Space Force. Those were our first government contracts. And, you know, we did great work for them. And obviously there's adjacencies around some of the work that we do with Space Force and NASA. But but look, everybody has data, all right? Everybody's trying to, you know, analyze data faster and, and do these things. And we just shown time and time again that we can handle very, very complex, esoteric, you know, data formats and things. And do it in real time, and get it into formats that machines and humans can leverage to go do their job. And you know, NASA's not any exception for that. How we got that? The easy answer is just like, look, we just showed and proved, right? Like, you know, you think government, you think bureaucratic, large, stodgy, slow, but there are people inside of the government that want to do better, and they want to, you know, preserve, you know, our freedoms and democracies, and, and use the latest and greatest technology to go through that because they know it will literally save lives. And we just shown time and time again, that we can just take on, you know, very, very, very tough problems, turning them around very fast and and do it at a very high quality. And I think that's what is, you know, given us the ability. I mean, funny enough, like a couple of people that we've met, it's like, yo, you guys are government contractors. And they've said that to us because it's like, yo, we'll solve things, you know, in a couple of weeks. When, you know, other companies will quote like multiple years and, you know, all this resource and things like that. And it's just like, we have this perspective that, you know, all that time literally is is costing lives and that is driving our work in that arena. And that drives us to do the best high quality work that we can. And so, you know, other government agencies have been able to, you know, come to us and, and throw their problems at us and we've been able to solve them. I mean, I'll admit like, you know, every kid at one point wanted to be an astronaut, right? Like. I think that that's that's one of the coolest things, and just being able to say like, "Yo, we work with NASA." Like, it's I mean, it's it's pretty cool, Brett. And it has to just give you a lot of
0: trust and credibility, right? I think all startups struggle with trust in the early days, and customers, especially enterprise customers, wonder, "Can the startup really deliver?" Having the NASA
1: logo is probably like one of the most powerful logos that you can possibly have. I think to build trust, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean. My thing is like, look, you know, you worried about security, like we have to do this stuff for our armed forces and Department of Defense, right? Like if you wonder about scale, you know, a single flight generates, you know, so much data per second, you know, we're handling billions of records a second, right? Like, I mean, not a second, a minute. So like, that's the thing where it's like, you can't fake scale, right? You can't fake complexity. And if I can do it, and, you know, we had talked about extreme ownership, right? If I can do it in this large bureaucratic organization, you know, like the government, I definitely can go do that for, for a bank or I can go do that for a CPG company and those types of things. And I think that's really been the benefit for us is that that transference of capability and that transference uh, for knowledge.
0: Now, a few months ago, I was watching a documentary and it was something like the, the secret history of Silicon Valley. And it was a... A little bit dry, but a lot of good information in there. And it was talking about how Silicon Valley was, you know, really rooted in defense and, you know, supporting the military in the earliest days. But then Silicon Valley kind of got away from it. And, you know, tech companies didn't want to work with defense. They didn't want to sell their technology to defense. Now that conversation seems to be changing a little bit. So for you, was that an easy decision to, you know, work with these government agencies and to sell to defense? And what were your thoughts going into that? Did you have any concerns that, you know, members of the team would push back and say, Hey, we
1: don't, you know, we don't want to work with these types of clients. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, elephant in the room, I am a black CEO. So the, you know, there's a lot of things from a defense side that, you know, could get stodgy, but you know, a little dodgy or whatever, but, but look, man, for us, we talked about it as a company. We said like, yo, here are lines that we can cross and here's things that, that, you know, we don't want to go down. And I think we've done a good job in explaining to, you know, keeping that bar high for ourselves and explaining it to the company, but it's like, you know, look, man, nobody has their hands clean in in any industry. Right. And like, you can go down the list of, you know, things that, that people have done. And it's like, yeah, should we like stop using Googling Gmail because of, you know, some of the things that they've done. And it's like, yo, where does it stop, right? And so for me, it's, it's kind of one of those things where I run a business and i got 30 some odd people that I got to take care of. And, you know, do we have things that we won't do? Sure. But, you know, look, at the end of the day, we have to make sure that this isn't a nonprofit exercise, right? Like we have to go make some money. Yeah, I love that. That's such a such a good mindset.
0: And I, yeah, I think that's something that a lot of founders could benefit from, from learning and, and hearing from, because, I hear that from even some founders I've interviewed, and yeah, I'm, I'm hearing these conversations. We're having these conversations, like, "Man, you're you're crazy. You need revenue to survive. Like, you're being this picky and choosy at the start. Yeah, you know, there's a good chance your startup's not going to be alive in a year or so.
1: Probably shouldn't be that selective when it comes to who you're working with. I mean, you can be, but you have to to know the trade offs on the other side of it, right? Like, I think a lot of what we are doing, it's like, look, we're real. You know, it's like you know, as a, as a black founder, am I going to stop dealing with any bank? Right. Like, because I'm, you know, feeling that dogmatic about what the banks have done, you know, as far as redlining and high interest rates and the crash that, you know, wiped out the generational wealth for over 80% of the the people who, who identify of being black African American in this country. I could go that route, but it's like, or, you know, I can run a business. Right. And like, you just have principles of things that we will do and won't do. And I, and just be very transparent about, it, right. You know, and that's the thing where, where I feel like a lot of founders, they just don't, they've never been in any circumstances before where they have to have their, their morals and their kind of moral fiber tested on the day-to-day basis, counterbalanced with like, Hey, I need to run a business as well. And I think for me and, and you know, my co-founder, we've been doing this our entire lives. So it's not really like a far leap for us to, to justify these things.
0: something I hope that's okay to ask about. So obviously, you know, the horrific murder of George Floyd that happened in what summer 2020, I think tech and venture capital firms and and really everyone was, you know, making these statements, making these promises and launching these initiatives, you know, aimed to really change things. So from your perspective as a black founder, have you seen any change? Are you, you happy with some of those outcomes
1: or no? I mean, listen, man, a lot of it is like, I'll be honest, like I wasn't really expecting a lot of change to happen. Right. Because again, you know, a lot of these corporations just aren't equipped to knowing how to do business outside of the majority. Right. And to do these things. So, you know, was it great that they made overtures? Sure. But like any type of thing that is initiative that is looked at as not as a cost center and not a revenue center. Right. Like, like those things will always dissipate. Remember when like green jobs was a thing? you know, and sustainability and all that stuff, like people, will, these things come and go. And I hate to be so, you know, realistic about it, but it's like, oh, you know, this isn't the first time that we've heard like, oh, we're going to, you know, double down on DEI and triple down on it because of this thing. Like, am I glad that there's more awareness? Sure. But I, you know, knew that these large Fortune 1000 companies that all kind of meet these performative overtures, like nothing really was going to cover that. Uh, I mean, we have seen some good things here and there, but for wide systemic change, none of that was going to happen because, you know, a lot of people see it as in order for me to make things equitable, I have to live without. And like a lot of people are not comfortable with that instead of saying like, look, equity is us growing the pie together. Right. And that means that if we grow the pie together, everybody eats. Right. And like until we can change that mindset, you know, none of these initiatives are ever going to be successful. Do you have a an opinion or a
0: perspective of what can be done to to bring more black founders into tech and, and to really try to equalize things? Cause when I looked at the numbers, they were just fucking depressing. Like the, the numbers hadn't really changed and it's and it was awful. But what's the answer? How do you how do we fix this? Oh man, we
1: got there's there's a lot of time for that, man. Uh, I don't know. if We got enough time for that, but I mean, look. Listen. Short list is like you know we have to get more black middle managers at these like bigger companies that that can give you a name brand because you know there's been a bunch of studies to show that like DEI initiatives die at middle management, especially on technical roles because you know there's no opportunity. Opportunities aren't granted. You know all the the glamour projects and things like that. You know they're not given right and so you know that's one thing the other thing is too you have to have more funders vCS that are not of the majority right and so you know you get more people that have these funds that are in specific niches they will fund black founders and then those black founders will go on to be successful uh hopefully in starting companies and hiring other other folks right like it's a bunch of different things that you can go do to make it make it more equitable I just you know, there's, it's not an apples and oranges things because, you know, I don't want to sound like, you know, downtrodden ghetto youth, but, but like the other part of it is a lot of people that could go and be black founders, right? You know, we're in these roles that are BP and above or, you know, these things, but like, we're basically our family's 401k, right? Like, you know, in my family, the person that makes the most money is like the leader of the family. And so anything that pops up, you know, you got to go take care of it. And so that means I got a lot of phone bills in my name. That means I got a lot of, you know, just a lot of little different things. And so we have to stay in these jobs that pay us the salary and we can't go take, you know, a startup salary to go do that. Right. And so there's a little bit of bit of that that goes along too. Like we just don't have the risk tolerance as a community to go do these things. And that and that's something that, you know, precludes us from being just jumping in the startup yet. So there's a lot of different things, but. I think, you know, systemically you give people opportunities to shine in the jobs they already have. Then, you know, that improves their founder market fit. Then from there, you know, they can go out and raise money, but you know, you got to raise money from people that can understand your problems and the problems that you're trying to solve. And then being able to have, you know, kind of the economic upside as well, so that, you know, you can offset your risk. Like that's a, that's a big thing too. So, and that's a loaded question. Like we can, you know, I hope anybody that's Black that's listening to me that's like, yo, he could have said this. He could have said, yes, I know I could have, but like, you know, we're time (laughs) constrained and I'm trying trying to summarize and do the best I can.
0: Yeah, and they're they're complex conversations. So hopefully, I didn't just throw that on you, and you know, maybe we can save a, a dedicated podcast. And I, I'd love to you dive deeper into this and better understand the problem. And you know, do what we can to try to spread around the ideas of you know, what actually needs to be done to to solve it. But we'll have to save that, I think, for part two. And if you're uh, you're cool, then let's switch now and dive a little bit deeper into some of the go to market related questions. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so. Funding product market fit isn't easy. I think every founder struggles with that. What was your journey like to find product market fit? And do you think you have it today? Does it feel like you've reached
1: product market fit? I would say we've reached product market fit in the government space. So yes, commercial enterprise, we're still searching for that, if I'm being honest. And I think for us, I would say the hard part is, and this is for any entrepreneur that's out there, making sure that you have people around you that can augment your shortcomings as a as a leader, right? So me and my co-founder, best in the world at building product. Like, I don't, I don't think that there's anybody walking this planet that can do a better job than Ali and I and the team that we have. The thing that we're not great at is, you know, selling right? And so for us, it was just really, really like like you have to find people around you that that are, you know, have the same hustle mindset, that have the same work ethic, that have the same you know, intellectual curiosity to go out and do those things that have, uh, you know, expertise in the area that you just don't possess. And I think that that's something that, that a lot of founders, you know, we buy into this call the personality that we have to be the last stop for everything, but really it's like, wow, you have to, the, your job is to build the best team possible to get the objective done. So having you found product market fit? Yes. In that area. And as we kind of move into other ICPs and other areas like, well, we'll develop that muscle and 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 I think we'll be stronger for it. A few
0: years from now, what do you think the percentage of revenue will be compared to commercial to government? Is it going to be like a, a 50-50 split or do you eventually envision that it's majority commercial revenue?
1: I mean, honestly, I think it'll probably be in a couple of years. i probably say it's probably 60 to 70% government, uh, 20 to 30 or whatever the, the math what I said, 30 to 40% uh, commercial. And it's just because, man, like the government is such a good place, especially Department of Defense is a source of business. Like there's so many problems that can get solved. And there's a big pot of gold at the end of every one of those rainbows. Right. And so, you know, we have the ability to build multiple billion dollar verticals in the commercial enterprise space, as well as the government space. And that's not something that a lot of companies, especially, uh, you know, we've technically only been in market for like a year and a half. Right. And so like, just to go to have that as a channel where we're competing against some of the the largest incumbents in the world and beating them, I think it would be foolhardy for me to say like, ah, we're going to focus solely on, on this, or like, we're going to have a, you know, kind of imbalanced revenue perspective. Right. Like, I just think that, you know, the avenues that we have and opportunities that we have on the government side are just, greater and they're getting greater by, by the day. And then, you know, as we build up the, the commercial enterprise motion, that's also going to be a, a very, very good source for us as well. What have you
0: learned from working with the government and having the government be a customer? Any takeaways that other founders listening in who are maybe considering going down this path should be
1: aware of, or maybe they can learn from your journey? Yeah, it just takes time. Right. It's, it's, it's more paperwork than you probably have ever done in your entire life. But at the end of the day, it's all working, right? And if you do a great job, they will be your biggest advocate for you. And I think that that's really the thing that we've learned over time is just like, yo, just get in and do great work, right? And don't pay attention to timelines and, you know, what other competitors are doing and things like that. Just go in and do your job and do it at the best levels because, Is literally a faucet that never stops, never stops drinking, right? Like it never stops flowing. So that is one of the things. And then to be honest, like it's not, the government isn't just defense, right? Department of Energy, there's, you know, that's at the federal level, right? Like there's state and local and municipal and county, like there's so many different ways that you can get involved in it. But just realize that like once you get signed in as a vendor on an appropriations bill or Whatever it is, it's like you have the ability to start bidding on a ton of other stuff. So you can go from, you know, three letter agency to three letter agency to, you know, different departments and things like that. All of them are looking for, you know, advances in technologies to make their lives easier all the way, you know, from city all the way up to federal. So, like, don't discount this as a channel just because the paperwork is stopped. Yeah, that's helpful to hear
0: because I think it is daunting, right? Or that's what founders have told me is, you know, staring up at that and like some of the process and the hoops you have to jump through to work with the government in the first place can be very difficult and
1: yeah, a little bit overwhelming. So that's good to know that there's uh, there's some light at the end. Yeah, man, it is. It really is. Like, like at the end of the day, I'm grateful for the people that we are servicing in the government because I know it's making their lives easier and we're helping save lives.
0: Now, as I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised over $19 million so far to date. What
1: have you learned about fundraising? Let's see. There's a few things I've learned about fundraising. I would say telling a story is one of the most important things, right? I mean, the thing about founders, you know, because I also angel invest, and the thing that I always want to tell them is like, on the other side, I'm like, look, you're selling yourself as much as you are this product and this company. So don't be shy about like interweaving, you know, your brilliance, your excellence, what got you here and all this stuff into your story. Because at the early stages, right, like your ideas can change and all the other stuff, but you just want to invest in people that you think are going to be able to weather the storm. So being able to do that and recognize that, that's going to help you a ton. The other thing that that you want to realize is like, look, when you're building a company and you're starting out funders and, And you're telling your story, like investors really, I guess they care about the product, but they care more about distribution. All right. And they want to understand like, yeah, you built this thing, but how are you going to get into the hands of the people that matter? And how are you going to do it cheap? Right. Like, yes, I can get a thousand customers, but if it costs me 20 grand to get a thousand customers, right? Like, you know, that's not really the best way to go through the 20 grand each. All right. So you want to figure out like, what is your distribution panel? What is the advantage to have a hypothesis? And informed hypothesis around that. I think the other thing is, I mean, you hear this on every every book, every podcast. Is like, make sure you have leverage, right? And being able to get that momentum flowing. Once you get somebody that's like, oh, you know, you go find a lead. We'll throw in some money for you, and it's like, cool. Can you be a reference for that? And you know, can I get you on paper to say that? And like, really, just kind of cut out the BS because once you start building momentum and once you start getting some names around the table. You know, everybody in this industry is kind of monkey see, monkey do, right? Like, once you have leverage, once you build momentum, everybody wants to jump in. Which also leads me to my next point: is like, not everybody deserves a meeting, right? Like, <laughs> like you know, you need to be be smart about who you're pitching to, why you're pitching, and what value that they can bring to your company. Like, you know, everybody's going to tell you at the earliest stage, it's like, oh, we can help you with hiring, we can help you with go to market. We can help you with this. We can help you with that. Like nine times I tend to BS. All right. Like you're going to be on the hook for all of that. So really just, just thinking about like, all right, well, you know, talk to other founders and ask questions. Founders that have had success with that, that VC company, founders that have, you know, not had success with them and see how those investors have behaved and, you know, like all that type of stuff. But just remember, not everybody deserves a meeting just because they're interested. Let's imagine that
0: you were starting the company again today from scratch and, and based on everything that you've learned so far in the journey,
1: what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to yourself? The well, number one piece of advice that I would give to myself would be, you know, trust the experiences that you've had, because there are some decisions that we made earlier on in the day, early, early on, because I was I'm kind of old looking over the fence and, you know, kind of looking at what our peers were doing. And it's like, you know what, the place that we're at now took a circuitous route to get there. But if we would have just trusted our gut in the beginning, we would have been there a lot faster. And I think that that's really the the thing. It's like, you know, being able to fail fast is is such an underrated skill, right? Like being able to set up experiments is such an you know, underrated skill. And, you know, if I would have just leaned back on my experience and, and those types of things did not try to, like, you know, kind of fit into to what, you know, my investors are asking me or asking me to do and like all these other things, I think it really would have changed things. Other thing too is just listen to your customers, right? Like it seems like it's such a a simple thing, but it's like, they'll tell you exactly what they want and what they need, all right? And like, you know, sometimes as founders, you get this humor, it's like, oh, I already know what they want. I already know what they need. But like, you need to listen to them with an open ear so that way you can build the thing that will get, like I said, we're not running the nonprofit here, right? Like you gotta generate revenue. And I think that that's the thing We've been lucky in that regard, but, you know, that's something that I would would tell myself again to go through. And the other thing I would say is, like, you know, build the ancillary team around me faster, right? Like, you know, me and my co-founder, we were trying to do a lot of things ourselves. And, like, we should have been able to build the support around us a lot faster. And that would have that would helped us a lot in the earlier days. I mean, there's so much stuff, man. I was, I'm was i just sitting back thinking, like, man, nope. <laughs> Don't use Trident as a, as a, and I don't care about name dropping because I've had the worst experience with that. But like, you know, don't use, you know, certain HR platforms and things like that. right? You know, don't use certain payroll providers. right? Like, there's so many things that, that so many headaches that we had on in the early days. And it's just like, I wasted so much time dealing with things that should have just been handled automatically.
0: So. <laughs> yeah. And you can't be the first founder who says that, right? I think that's every wow. single founder's journey, is it's a, it's painful and it's a grind and it it sucks a lot of times, right? In those early days, as you're getting things going, you know, there's going to be decisions that you look back
1: on and think, shit, I, I wish I would have made a different decision there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But the other thing is, it's like, you know, I hate to sound like an Instagram meme, but it's like, there's no losses. There's only lessons. The only time that you experience a loss, if you make the same mistake twice, right? Because you didn't learn from the first time. And I think we've been good at that, where, where we've learned along the way. And thank God we've had had good investors and, and you know made money and you know that's bought us time to you know basically recover from those early early learning points. But are there things that we could be better? Sure. Uh, are there things that we could could have reduced pain? Sure. But I think those times have made us more resilient, and it gives me the ability to talk about it comfortably to, to to help other founders so that they don't you know kind of make the same mistakes that we made. I mean, you know, everybody looks at this as such a competitive sport, but like, look, man, we're all in this we're all in this entrepreneurial game together. Right. And so if there's anything I can do to the spouse, any knowledge to help people not bump their heads against, like, I feel like that's my duty in the, you know, kind of founder, founder fraternity that that we have. Well, hey, that's our whole vision for this podcast.
0: You know, I, I really feel that founders learn best from hearing from their peers and and learning from founders like them. And you know, what I see is a lot of founders go and they get advice from someone who's built a billion dollar company or from someone who, you know, had an exit 20 years ago and wrote a book about it. But I think you can really learn much, much more if you're, you know, hearing directly from people who are, you know, maybe a little bit above you in terms of, you know, company size or funding, like that's where you can really learn a lot from. And that's where those tactical lessons are much more actionable. So
1: that's our entire thesis for the show here. Yeah, man. I mean, that's a great platform. And I heard it, that's the reason why I came on with just like, look, you know, the, I'm a, you know, grizzled veteran, right? Like, but I can, I'm like the udonest half of the startups, right? Like I can, I can tell you what to do. I can tell you what not to do, but hopefully you can go be successful and then pay it forward to the next group of founders that you can influence, right? And I think that's really, really what we have to do because the other thing about this is, and what nobody really tells you about is that this is the loneliest position that you'll ever have, right? Like, who are you going to go talk to about a lot of this stuff? A lot of founders don't have, you know, executive coaches. They might have a therapist, you know, they might have a spouse or, you know, significant other, but they just feel like the embarrassment that like, oh, I should have this figured out. And it's like, no, nobody really does. All right. And so go talk to people and and you'll find out And I found out myself that I'm not the only one dealing with a lot of this stuff. And, you know, I've been fortunate to, you know, be have a, a great coach and then be able to be a part of an organization like YPO. And like, just be able to commiserate with other people doing that at a very high level, and this honestly, it's, it's been it's been game changing for me. So, if this podcast is the conduit to doing that, like, I hope more and more people listen to this and take heed to, especially you know, existing founders and up and coming founders. Amazing. All right, man, we are up on time, so we're gonna have to wrap here.
0: Unfortunately, I think we're for sure gonna have to do a, a part two and, and maybe a part three at some point, <laughs> to go deeper on some of these topics, but. Hey, thanks for coming on. This has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I, I really learned a lot from you. And I think other founders who listen are also going to learn a lot. So thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, no problem. Thanks again, Brett. All right, man. Keep in touch.